This podcast is not intended to be an investigative report, and all opinions stated herein are opinions strictly from the hosts and are not affiliated with any law enforcement entity. This is a true crime podcast and may contain information that may be disturbing to some listeners. Audience discretion is advised. Welcome to Vintage Homicide, a true crime podcast being presented to you by two forensic scientists with a passion for the vintage lifestyle. We are your hosts, Ms. Ruby Wild and Ms. Mayday. We will bring you historic murders with special insight into the era and the forensics involved to look back at what crime solving may have been like. This podcast is benefiting the 501c3 Bombshell Betty's Calendar for Charity, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to raise support and awareness for veterans' charities through community involvement, photography, and pinups. So, Miss Mayday, why is Medusa such a good drug dealer? I don't know. Why? One look at her and you're stoned. Mm, All right. (laughs) So one of our tales today does have to do a little bit with drugs, but we're just going to jump right in. We're going to start Friday, January 24th, 1969, when 23-year-old friends Patricia Walsh, who was a teacher, and Marianne, a college student, left for a girls weekend in Providence, and they were in Patricia's blue VW bug. When they arrived in Providence, they found a guest house operated by Miss Morton. So technically, Providence is a part of Cape Cod, which is like, it looks like a flexing arm kind of thing (laughs) into the ocean. Yeah. So Massachusetts, this is the state that it's in, right? Right. So it's on the East Coast. It has this peninsula that hangs off of Massachusetts, and it's like the southern part of Massachusetts, and it extends into the Atlantic Ocean, and it makes like a a hook. So yeah. it always looks like somebody flexing their bicep to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you like bend your thumb or like, yeah, flex yeah. the muscle, it's that kind of hook is known as Cape Cod and Providence is just West of Cape Cod formally. So there's a lot of fun things about Cape Cod. I've never been to Cape Cod. Me neither. Um, I don't kind of go to that part of the country very often. It's kind of interesting because it is the ninth oldest English named place in the United States. So again, because we were a former British colony, the term Cape Cod was coined in 1602 by a captain Bartholomew Gosnold. And he was attempting to settle English colonies in the new world. And in 1602, he sailed from Falmouth Cornwall in England and then landed in New England, what we know as right. New England, but he landed in kind of like Cape Elizabeth in Maine. And then from there, he ended up settling like 20 fishermen, basically. And then he sailed again from Maine, because it's just south of Maine, into Provincetown Harbor, which is where he named that whole area Cape Cod for its fish, because huh. Cod. Codridge. Yes, exactly. And then from there, it's kind of interesting because if you know anything about Cape Cod, you know that Martha's Vineyard is a very famous place there. Rich people. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Again, which I don't, I don't go to this area. I have no business going here. It's out of my tax bracket. (laughs) Yeah. So Martha's Vineyard is also named by him because it was named after his deceased daughter, Martha as well as for the wild grapes that covered that area, which was mostly uninhabited at the time. However, like Cape Cod was habited by 
Native Americans. So yeah, Cape Cod is kind of famous for tourism in the summertime. It's got a long coastline, beaches in the Atlantic. The Cape Cod style that we know of is lighthouses, right? We see yeah. these images of Cape Cod lighthouses. Uh, we have them actually here on the West Coast because we styled them after the ones on the East Coast. And it's kind of interesting that the Cape Cod style of lighthouses doesn't actually exist in Cape Cod anymore. They're not <laughs> functioning lighthouses, apparently. However, in California, we still have functioning Cape Cod style lighthouses. Huh. One of the most famous ones we have here on the West Coast, when it was the first one built after the Cape Cod style, is the one on Alcatraz Island. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, I've seen but, that one a couple times. Yeah. It was built in 1854, and it's the first Cape Cod style lighthouse built on the West Coast. So yeah, and then Cape Cod, we know for like oysters, shellfish, lobstering, and cranberries, right? Yeah, yeah, the cranberries. <laughs> so yeah, that that's kind of Cape Cod in a nutshell. And I guess these girls were going on a ladies' trip for kind of enjoying the summer there. Yeah, uh, it was actually the winter. They're there in January because they're part of school, so they have to wait for school break. Oh, that's um, right. You did say it was January. Yeah. Hmm. So one's a teacher and one's a college student. So they had to wait for their break. They decided to go in January. So a little bit brisk, but still they're having a good old time, like a girls weekend. The guest house operator, Miss Morton, she introduced this pair of girls to Tony, who was one of her longtime tenants, because the girls were going to be sharing a bathroom with him. So she wanted to make sure that they were aware of each other, like, okay, we are two girls going to be sharing the bathroom with a man. And so she wanted to facilitate their meeting. And then, so the, you know, the girls were talking to him and the next morning while Miss Morton was doing her rounds of the rooms to see if anyone needed anything, she found a note pinned to the girl's door from Tony and on it was a piece of like, so he wrote this note on a torn paper bag and then he pinned this note to the girl's door and the note was asking if he could have a ride to Truro. I don't even know how far that is, or even if I just pronounced that right. Yeah. You know, that's the, also an interesting fun fact about this area in general, like Massachusetts, all of the town names, they're not pronounced generally how they appear in writing. That's right. Um, yeah. So Truro though is one of them. It's, okay. <laughs> it seems like, why would you pronounce this word this way? Cause yeah. it's just a lot of murmuring sound. <laughs> yeah, but no, it's Truro and <laughs> it's a town that's also in Barnstable County. And this is in the outer Cape. So if you imagine that flexing arm, it's at the tip. Okay. So it's so kind you have of to go the long way around. Yeah. So it's just on the, just South of the absolute tip. And this is called the outer Cape area. So it's about a hundred miles by road from Boston. Again, it's a summer vacation community and it's just South of that little tip there at Cape Cod. So that's where Truro is. Okay. I was like, it's like the word brewery where you can't mm -hmm. say it and enunciate it all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So the girls agreed, but they told him they have to get back early because they had plans to meet up with their friend, Russell. So the trio was seen in town in that blue VW last at 2 p.m. by one of Tony's friends, Zachariah, but they were headed into Truro, not back towards the boarding house. So they were still headed toward the tip. That night, Russell, who was waiting to meet up with his friends, they never showed. So he was like a little bit concerned, but he's like, okay, you know, like they're on vacation. Maybe they're just off having a good time. So not completely concerned yet. 
The next day, the 26th, Miss Morton again was doing her rounds to see if the guests need anything. And she found a note on the girl's door on the same torn paper bag material that said, quote, we are checking out. Thank you for your many kindnesses. And it was signed Marianne and Pat. So she decided to enter the room, you know, to clean it for the next guests. And they were all packed up and nothing was left behind. So their room was completely cleared out. But things still were not as they seemed because Pat didn't show up to teach on that Monday. So this is very strange, abnormal behavior for her. Mm -hmm. She would never no call, no show if she wasn't going to make her classes. And she had a boyfriend at this time, and he also had not heard from her since Saturday. And she said, I'm going to be home Sunday. And he, again, I don't believe that they live together. So I don't think that he was concerned when he didn't hear from her checking with Pat's parents. They also hadn't heard from her and they started getting concerned as well. So now we're going to jump to Tuesday and still no one had heard from Marianne or Pat and Pat's dad contacted the police to report both of them missing, but police, because this is back in the 1960s, they didn't really take him serious because Pat was 23 and she was allowed to wander off if she wanted to. So they basically said it was like a a voluntary disappearance. Yeah. I mean, she's an adult. So generally speaking, they just assume that they're doing their own thing. Yep. So now we're going to jump to February 2nd, and this is independent of the girls being reported missing, but somebody reported the abandoned VW parked in a parked in Truro on the side of a road behind Pine Grove Cemetery. And that was established in 1799, which makes sense because you said that this is one of the older areas. There's like a plaque and everything there. It's pretty fun to check out. Yeah. It's a second oldest cemetery actually in Massachusetts. Oh. So yeah. And super old, 1799. It's really remote part of that whole area of Cape Cod, which is now a national seashore. So kind of like a park. Okay. A national park. And it was originally established as a Methodist church and then a cemetery, but the church is no longer there anymore. And a lot of it is extremely rural. It's off of a dirt road. There's no like paved roads to get to this area. And it's been like this since it was established. So it's a very kind of hidden and off the beaten path area. So it's, you know, fenced in, but there's lots of trees and basically a gravel roadway that enters into the cemetery. So it's kind of off the beaten path, not really noticeable and things could ensue there without people knowing what's going on back there. So you wouldn't see this car unless you were intentionally going to the The cemetery. cemetery. Correct. Okay. So it's just, it, that's why they reported it abandoned because there's just this car parked there. Mm -hmm. The police went to check on the vehicle and there was a note on the windshield claiming car problems. Okay. Fair enough. So they decided to just leave it and they would check on it again later. And they did go back to check on it. Like, okay, these people are missing and their car is left behind. So where did they go? Right. So when they went back, the car was gone and they were like, okay, maybe they fixed their car problems, but they were like, you know, we're just going to do our due diligence and we're going to look around this area just because it seemed really weird that the vehicle was parked there in the first place. Cause as Miss Mayday says, it was, it's not a driving road. It's like a, yeah. What, it's did, a... what did we call it? The gobbler's gulch? Is that <laughs> it? <laughs> yes. Gobbler's gulch. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could use it sort of like a lover's lane. It's because it's secluded and 
completely off of any main road. You'd have to know that you're going there, that it exists out there. And it's just a gravel roadway and a kind of dirt path. So chances are the girls didn't know about this path, that it was Tony that pointed them towards it. Mm -hmm. What they found in the area where the car was, was some torn paperwork that looked like a car registration. And on some of these papers that were scattered around, they saw the name Patricia Walsh. And that was the woman who was reported missing. Mm -hmm. So the police antenna are up and they start organizing a search party February 8th. So keep in mind, these girls left for now. Yeah, no, 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 like a couple weeks. Yeah. So they left January 24th. It is now February 8th that they finally put together a search party. While doing their search, they found a partially buried duffel bag. And that's never a good sign because inside the buried duffel bag was a 20 to 30 year old woman of small stature. When she was, I said extracted, that's such a gross word for this, but when she was exhumed, yeah, (laughs) it was determined that she had been buried in the ground for about six months to a year prior. Huh? So that meant the timing is not right. Uh -uh. It's not Pat or Marianne. Uh So not to mention her face didn't resemble either of the women. And she had been dismembered before being placed in the bag to make sure that she could fit. So we've got like this unknown woman in an area where Pat and Marianne are last seen. Mm -hmm. So they're like, okay, this is, this is not what we were looking for. Yeah. So the police now are like, okay, we have a bigger situation. Yeah. And so they did continue their search. And I couldn't find a cause of death, like an official cause of death for this woman, but it was determined that she was a woman, um, Susan, who went by the name Sue Perry. She was born in 1950 in Massachusetts, and she was identified by a ring that was actually her mother's wedding band. She had gone missing Labor Day weekend, 1968. So it was just under a year before Mm -hmm. she was just 17. So I call her a woman, but she she's a child. And what's curious about that is Sue had also been connected to Tony when she went missing. And Tony told everyone she left him to go to Mexico. Okay. Yeah. So so Tony is coming up mm kind of on the radar here. Yeah. His nose ain't exactly clean at this point. Mm -hmm. So another connection to Tony is that the spot Sue was buried was known to be a space that he used to grow marijuana. See the drug connection. All my jokes tend to (laughs) hit up with the story. Okay. Um, And what he would do is he would invite these, you know, traveling people to come and see his marijuana plants because this is the 60s and that was like the go to drug. Mm -hmm. So police went to talk about Tony to what was happening with the two missing women that were last seen in his company and Sue, who was last seen in his company. And when the police went around to question Tony, they found that he was driving the blue VW bug. Mm. They were like, okay, me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. So they asked him why he had it. And he said, oh, the two girls gave me the car because they were taking off to Canada. Without their car. Uh Uh-huh. Just on a whim. They abandoned their car, take off to Canada. That's it. So the police were like, "Mm, no. And they went to search his house and they found some of Pat's belongings in his room, as well as a discolored piece of rope and some shoes that looked like they had potential blood on them. Okay. With this info, they said, Tony, what's going on again? Mm -hmm. And he changed his story saying the girls gave him the car for a debt because he sold them drugs. Okay. A car is probably worth a lot more than drugs. Just throwing that one out there. Uh, Yeah. Especially like some weed that you're growing. Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. So police are really on their toes and they start diving deeper onto Tony. And they found that on January 29th, he asked a gas station owner how much it would cost to paint a VW bug a different color. Mm. Sketchy. Yeah. On February 7th, he rented a parking space for the car, removed the plates and stashed them under the rubber mat. And so this was discovered once they had the car in custody. So police brought Tony in for official questioning. And while there, his mother came to the station with a telegram that had been sent to her. It allegedly was sent by Pat and Marianne from New York City saying they were fine. Now, why Pat and Marianne would send Tony's mother a telegram saying they're in New York and perfectly fine rather than their family or anything. Police Uh were looking into this and found that the telegram had been sent from a place that Tony had access to. So things are, are folding in. And on March 5th, the search for Pat and Marianne ended and close to the area where Sue was found were the two women. But that's not all, because there was one more body that they found, Sydney Monson. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Now we have four? Four. Four women now deceased in this same area that Tony was known to grow his marijuana plants in. Behind the cemetery. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So Pat had been shot in the neck, which led to her death. Marianne had been shot in the head twice. Pat had been cut in half. Oh, this is going to be gruesome, by the way. Pat had been caught in half at her waist. Her skin had been pulled from her chest, staying attached at her shoulders. So, you know, a dicky. Yeah. He basically did that to her chest. Okay. Oh, you might want to explain what a dicky is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to imagine this. Oh, uh, you just said, but a dicky is sort of like a a piece of fabric that is like a faux shirt that you would wear underneath, like inside of a dress. Say if the dress is kind of low cut or um, just exposes too much skin, so women would commonly wear like a dicky, which basically has a head hole. You put it over your head, and it's like a flap, kind of like a bib that yes. just goes over your chest and then you put your dress on over it. And so you don't have to put on a full size shirt. It just gives you the appearance that you're wearing something underneath your dress. Yeah. So that's what he did to her chest. Okay. Um, So it's like a flap now. Yes. There was also post-mortem incised wounds on the chest wall and it fractured a rib. Marianne Mm -hmm. had stab wounds on her butt, large slashes on her chest. Her skin was pulled off in the same manner as Pat's. She was dismembered into five pieces. Both had been raped after death. So these, this was, it was nasty. That's, um, you know, I'm surprised. How do they assess that? I believe like the postmortem rapes, it's because of when when a woman. Is it just the amount and there's no drainage? I probably that as well as when you have ripping and tearing because of a rape, if it doesn't actively bleed. Yeah. But that's only if there is that type of tearing right which would be assumed because i don't believe that there would be any lubrication involved right as natural lubrication yeah Yeah. okay so that's what i'm this is assuming these sort of indications and they're making the assessment that that means it's post-mortem exactly and so in the area near the graves were three 22 caliber discharge cartridge cases And ballistics did show that they were fired from Tony's gun that had been found. And I found different reports on this. Again, with these old timey cases, it's sometimes somebody reports something and then it winds up being corrected. So they either said that the gun was found 
at one of the great, like nearby one of the graves, or when they searched his home, it was recovered from his home. Okay. But, but either they way, linked the gun to those same discharge cartridge cases. Yes. Okay. So now back to Sydney, who was the fourth woman that was found. She was 18, also had known Tony and was last seen May 25th, 1968. She was working for a Provincetown A&P, which I believe is like a, like a liquor store or something or like a grocery store. Yeah. Convenience store. Yeah. Okay. So she had left her bike leaning against the store and her sister, I don't know why, believed that she took off to Europe with a friend. Like she just left her bike, left without a word and was in Europe with a friend. So there's a common theme here. All of these women that meet Tony shortly thereafter are like leaving out of the country for some random reason. Yes, exactly. With, With no belongings or anything with them. Right. So because her sister believed that she was gone, she never reported her missing. I couldn't find the cause of her death either, because basically the reason that I can't find the causes of their death is because most of the news articles are from Pat and Marianne, who was the reason that he was eventually targeted into these deaths. So that's what everybody was reporting on. So now who is Tony? He was born August 2nd, 1944. His father died in World War II while he was still an infant. At the age of seven, he told his mom that a quote unquote man was coming into his room at night, but the description that he gave was of his father. How creepy is that? Creepy. Uh Uh-huh. Like either he saw a picture of his father and like was going through this or if you believe in the paranormal, the ghost was visiting. Okay. His mother did remarry and he blamed this new family dynamic as to why he started having bad behavior. So in November 1961, at 16, he entered a Somerville, Massachusetts apartment illegally. There was a teenage girl in her bed sleeping. She woke up to him bending over her. She screamed, so he ran away. Now, three days later, he went back to the same house and attempted to remove her from the house, but the neighbors heard what was happening and saved her. So twice he went after the same girl. Twice she was able to escape. Mm-hmm. Uh, For this, he was arrested and charged and convicted of burglary and assault. And that was January 4th, 1962. He only got a one-year suspended sentence in probation. Suspended sentence, correct me if I'm wrong, that's when, like, basically, if you do something wrong, then you go back to jail. Like, you go to jail for a year, correct? Yeah. It's not really commonly done anymore, but it's... Yeah. So they released him basically on probation. And if yeah. you violate the terms of your probation, then you go and serve a one-year sentence. Gotcha. So it's sort of like he got out and as long as he didn't do anything else wrong, he would stay out of jail. Right. But then if he violated any of those terms, then he would have to mandatory serve this sentence. I just don't understand how, how do you get off on such a light? I don't know. Sentence? Twice. Same, same girl twice. I mean, he tried to kidnap her. Yeah. From her home. Yeah. She was a teenager. Yeah. Like, I, I don't, yeah. I don't, maybe because he was a minor. He was a minor yeah, at the he time. He was 16. So okay. maybe, but yeah. they shouldn't have done it because in 1963, at the age of 19, he married 14 year old Avis when he got her pregnant. So at 19, he impregnated a 14-year-old, and then they got married. Yeah. I, I mean, all of this sounds crazy to us, but again, it's 1963. Like, yeah. I think the world was just a different place. <laughs> yeah. Well, they stayed together long enough for her to have three of his children, two boys and one girl. 
was not a great and joyful marriage because he started dealing drugs and getting high on his own supply. Their marriage was on again, off again, and this is when he brought home two girls, Bonnie Williams and Diane Federoff, on June of 1966. So he basically tells his wife, I'm taking these two girls to California. Okay. And his wife was like, um, okay. Okay, yeah. He said, I'm going to take you to California, and 10 days later, he was back in Massachusetts alone. Ah. Okay. Okay. You know, it's doable. Now, I read so many articles that are like, these were his first two victims. Oh, my gosh, they're missing and they were killed. No, no. I found record of them. There was a book called The Babysitter, and it was My Summers with a Serial Killer. It was written by Liza Rodman and Jennifer Jordan. And these women that he had claimed to be giving a trip to California, they were alive. They continued their trip to California where they lived on panhandling and drugs because that was popular at the time. And then they made their way to Haight-Ashbury. And I'm sure everybody has heard about Haight-Ashbury, but what is it exactly? Yeah. Like, I know that it's like, when it, <laughs> it, it's like the Studio 54 of a town. I'm it's, assuming. it's a district of San Francisco. So San Francisco is divided into a bunch of different districts. So that they're just neighborhoods, basically. And the neighborhoods are all named kind of interestingly and hate Ashbury is actually named after the streets and the street names are commemorating two of San Francisco's early leaders. So there was a pioneer and exchange broker banker, and his name was Henry hate. Okay. And then there was also a man who was a member of the San Francisco board of supervisors at the time from like the 1860s, the 1870s. And this is when San Francisco was formulating as a city and that person's name was Monroe Ashbury. So these two streets, this cross section area of hate and Ashbury streets, Mm -hmm. that whole neighborhood in that adjacent area to that intersection is referred to as hate Ashbury or the hate upper hate. And it basically becomes so famous in the sixties and early seventies because it is, it becomes the epicenter for the hippie counterculture movement. Uh, so this is where the, um, like beatniks and stuff. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. So originally the beatniks started congregating in San Francisco's North beach neighborhood. And this included, you know, famous authors like Jack Kerouac. And, you know, he wrote a novel called on the road and, At that time, the beatnik generation started gaining momentum and more and more people because of the beat generation and these authors, they started kind of popularizing this culture. And so this North beach area of San Francisco becomes heavily populated, but then it's also very expensive. And so as more and more people are arriving in San Francisco, they end up getting pushed out to the adjacent area, which is the hate Ashbury area. Mm. So then the movement then starts to kind of change slightly to what we know as the hippie movement and all of the people congregating there, they have this counterculture idea, which is basically off of the belief of like a free society where people weren't kind of ruled by consumerism. So they built like free medical clinics. They gave out free meals. These were free stores basically where people could come and it was all based around community and not like capitalism. 
So there's a famous group called the diggers that kind of took up residence. They were community anarchists. So that's what okay. they kind of called them. And then you had artists arriving in this area who were basically hippies. Right. Okay. And so a lot of this also hand in hand with drug culture. Right. And anti-war because right now this is the Vietnam era. So again, all of this influx of people and music and culture, just counterculture right. is, is based here in San Francisco, which is why hate Ashbury becomes so famous. This, was, I mean, I know that I've heard about it for, I mean, my entire life. And I was like, yeah, but what is yeah, it? <laughs> it's because, I mean, it's not our generation. We were obviously like it very little is known. We don't have that experience unless our parents were hippies. Right. Yeah. And, and mine were mine not. Were not. <laughs> <laughs> My dad served in Vietnam Yeah, and uh, they were from the boomer generation. Yes. Mine was so. drafted. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this was not a thing that we grew up knowing and understanding this you know, the summer of love, which was 1967 Mm -hmm. is kind of what kind of skyrocketed sort of the area of hate Ashbury as being this epicenter for this movement. And that's like, they were there in 1966. So it it definitely Mm -hmm. was right then. Yeah. Which is why I think when so many young people started disappearing, the people were not really concerned because I think they just thought that this was all due to the hippie movement because this is what teenagers were doing. They were leaving their homes and they were flocking to California and San Francisco for this kind of movement to live in this utopian community. So I think people just thought, no, they were just hippies and sorry, they went missing and they're probably there doing drugs. And And in this case, they were, they were doing drugs (laughs) and they were panhandling to pay for them. And they all became actually groupies for the band Jefferson Airplane. Right. Which I grew up listening to them a little. (laughs) Yeah. So this is a popular band because this is when the hippie movement starts going mainstream with the music. Mm -hmm. And so you have bands like Grateful Dead, Jefferson's Airplane, Big Brother and the Holding Company. These are all famous bands and their genre was psychedelic music. Right. So this is sort of the, the kind of culture and it was making its way mainstream, which is also perpetuating why people were coming to the hate Ashbury. Right. Area. So it's all like all of this is culminating, which is why these two girls, Diane and Bonnie, why they just kind of fell off the face of the earth for a while and why everybody believed that they had been murdered. But to continue on with their lives, Diane stayed in California and Bonnie hitchhiked back to Florida, like back to the East Coast. Bonnie got married in 1969, had three children and unfortunately died from brittle diabetes, which I'm not 100 percent sure what that is in 2010 at the age of 62. Yeah. So she is deceased, but not by the hands of Tony. OK, so there so- was a lot of conspiracy theories that these were two of his earliest victims. However, they were located. Yes. Very much alive. Yes. And their children are still alive. Diane was married three times, gave birth to three daughters, and she died in 1995 when her husband and her were in a car accident. She was just 45. So like I said, if you've heard of their cases before, you likely heard that these two were victims of Tony's. They were not on Mm -hmm. the record. There's proof. Okay. So by 1968, his marriage was on its last leg. And this time he took off alone to San Francisco, California, back to the Haight-Ashbury area. So it was there that he found a girlfriend, Barbara Spaulding. She left her child with some relatives and poof, gone. 
Diddy Killer. Again, she's constantly mentioned as a potential victim. But again, no, everybody's wrong. Her daughter believes that when police went to look for her, she was either in prison or Haight-Ashbury doing drugs, living underground. Barbara had already been married and divorced by the time she met Tony. But after their brief relationship, they broke up. She married two more times and had another child in 1975. They were estranged for a lot of her daughter's life because she was using drugs and alcohol copiously. Again, like she was part of that Haight-Ashbury movement. And uh, her daughter found out that her mother died in 1999 when she was mailed her death certificate. So unfortunately, that's how she found out. All right. That's a shame. It really is. So Barbara died in a flop house in San Francisco at the age of 50. So again, that was 1999. So again, she lived after having a relationship with Tony, not a victim. Okay. A victim of circumstance because of the drug and counterculture movement, but not of Tony's. Right. So now we get to the point Remember to the fourth victim that was found, which was actually the first victim. If that right. makes sense. Chronologically, yeah. Yes. So we're at the point where Sydney disappeared, May of 1968. August is when Avis officially filed for divorce from Tony. So May, she goes missing. August, he's getting a divorce. This leads up to September when Susan Perry went missing. In November, he was arrested for not paying support payments to Avis. When he was released, he took up with a woman named Christine Gallant, who shared his love for drugs and the quote unquote hip scene or hippie scene. Again, this relationship did not last because she had died November 23rd in her New York apartment, having drowned in her bathroom while overdosing on barbiturates. Was it murder? Not officially. So, okay. He was the one that provided her with the drugs. I don't know if he was present when she drowned. There's okay. no record of that. But we're now in November of 1968. So okay. we're back to January 1969, where the girls trip went wrong. Okay. All right. So with all of this, Tony was officially arrested and brought in for psychological testing where he was diagnosed with schizoid personality, which I guess that would be schizophrenia today. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I don't want to like misname any of these. I'm I'm not a psychologist, but I do know that we have a psychologist fellow podcaster that listens to us. So maybe she'll jump in. I don't know. Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> so three months later, after another examination, he was characterized as a quote unquote modern day Marquis de Sade. Yeah. After it seems weird and a stretch, but. Okay. Yeah, this is Marquis de Sade was like an author and yeah. Yes. Sade was, he was an author. He wrote a lot of erotic works, but more than that, he had like a philosophy, right. That dealt with basically sexual freedom and yes. libertine values. So this was not feeling any sort of moral or ethical issues surrounding sex and free will. Yeah. So basically it's sort of hedonistic. And then he did kind of coin these terms that we know of as sadism or sadist. And this was just because he wrote a lot of fictional works that portrayed sexual cruelty. Right. But yeah, so it's kind of interesting to me that they would refer to him as the modern day Marquis de Sade. I don't, I don't see a parallel there unless there's a lot that we're missing. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I don't have the death records of two of the women. So I don't know what he may or may not have done to them. Maybe because the parallel there is like the young 
young women, because um, a lot of Marquis de Sade's writings have to deal with adolescence engaged yeah. in sex and child rape. And then maybe because of the mutilations of the bodies and the postmortem sex. I, yeah. Maybe so they that's... did declare him sexually dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. So he was found to be not insane. So like, even with all of this, they were like, no, like he may be sketch, but he's, he definitely knew what he was doing and that what he did was wrong. Okay. So he was put on trial officially for the murders of Marianne and Patricia May in 1970. And we've talked about this before that even though there's multiple victims, they usually only try him for a couple. So that way, if anything happens, they still have more murders that they can try him for and try again because of double jeopardy. Yeah. They wouldn't do all four at the same time. And I think this, those two victims are the only ones that there's actual physical evidence linking him. It could be because of the car. I'm thinking. Yeah. And um, then the gun and then the rope. Right. And, and her belongings in his apartment. Right. I think for the other two victims, they had been gone for so long that there was yeah. probably nothing to really conclusively connect him other than them being last seen with him. Right. I didn't see anything about them finding evidence on the other two. Yeah. Okay. So now we get to sensationalism because the district attorney, Edmund Dinas, basically told the media a bunch of salacious, not altogether truths about the murders. He was to the media. The girls' hearts were missing and there were bite marks. So it was most likely cannibalism. And that that's not true. <laughs> so okay. he, he was basically trying to do trial by media. Uh-huh. Now, Tony made a statement in his own defense claiming that from 1965 to 1969, he was using amphetamines, barbiturates, LSD, methadrine, hashish, solacin, nebutal, and marijuana, which is lots of drugs. Yeah. A lot of brain discombobulators, but the jury didn't give a crap. And he was convicted of both murders and sentenced to life in prison while serving his time in Massachusetts Walpole Correctional Institution, which is a maximum security prison he decided to turn to the occult and he started like collecting magic books and especially Anton LaVey's satanic Bible, which yeah, this it's a, it's an interesting collection. So it's sort of like an anthropology of essays, observations and rituals that get published into a series of like a volume of texts. And Anton LaVey is the person who just kind of, combines all these things together. And this is in 1969. So this, okay. So the satanic Bible is not considered to be a sacred scripture, the way that the Christian Bible is to Christianity. So it just is associated with Satanism and contemporary Satanism because of the title. Right. But it's really more of a philosophy. So it's, explores kind of these concepts of human nature and human instincts and the believers of the satanic Bible, they're actually referred to as atheistic Satanists. Okay. Because they believe that God and Satan are not external entities, but rather parts of the human self, like their, your own personality. So that so you it's have, like the good angel and the bad angel on your shoulder. Correct. That they're stabilizing forces. You have opposing forces. And so the satanic Bible is that balance on the other side of the spectrum where these are natural instincts of human behavior. Right. So th- there is 
and again, like I said, it's kind of a collection of things. One of the volumes deals with rituals. And that's probably the one that gets taken out of context the most because it's like satanic rituals, right? Satanism. Right. Satanic panic. And this is what is associated, I think, with it because it deals with kind of why you see mutilation, why you see sacrifice and things like that. Right. So they all get attributed because people who follow the satanic Bible. Right. So he's, like I said, magic books, occult, Anton LaVey. Mm-hmm. He's, this is his life now. He even wrote a book that was never published claiming, oh, this is the real story of what happened. But apparently nobody wanted to read it. So what he said in his unpublished book titled Resurrection, he said that he and his friend, and I don't know if it's because the copies were so bad or I don't know what. He said it was Corey or Carl. I saw both publish. They were out with two women taking LSD and Dilaudid, which is like a form of morphine. Yeah, um, it's hydromorphone. And it's just a really, really powerful, like two to eight times stronger than normal morphine. Yeah. So that mixed with LSD. Good combo. It was Corey, his his friend, that shot Patricia and Marianne. And he said that after getting Corey under control, he saw that Marianne was still alive. So he decided to help and stab her to end her suffering. Rather than help her, he just decided to finish killing her. Okay. So then he said that the two buried the bodies. And then he said that the other two bodies, Susan and Sydney, died of drug overdoses. And he said that his Corey or Carl, his friend, was the one who was the one to dismember and bury the bodies in the duffel bags. Okay. So he wrote like a, if I did it book. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, (laughs) Oh my gosh. And he's blaming everything on this other friend dude. Yeah. So author Kurt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't know. I know how to see it, (laughs) not say it. (laughs) Yeah. Kurt Vonnegut. Okay. He was the writer of Slaughterhouse Five and he actually wrote about Tony as well. Okay. Slaughterhouse Five is kind of a really famous book. It is. Have you ever read it? I didn't. I don't know what it's about. It is really weird. So Slaughterhouse-Five also has an alternate title called The Children's Crusade, A Duty Dance with Death. It's basically an anti-war novel where it's part autobiographic because Kurt Vonnegut also, he served in World War II. And so it was sort of like his experiences from war infused in a fictional story where the main character's name is Billy Pilgrim. So I think from culture, you probably have heard this name, Billy Pilgrim. Yeah. But basically the novel follows this unreliable narrator, first person perspective of Billy Pilgrim, who is an American soldier during World War II. And he travels through time. Okay. And it kind of shows like there's a part of the book where He's captured by the German army, and then he survives the bombing at Dresden. So when the Allied forces are bombing Dresden, he's a prisoner of war there. And it like kind of accounts for this experience while, you know, the shelling is taking place. And then German soldiers are also taking refuge there inside with them. And it's just a really crazy out of order temporal (laughs) read where these experiences of Billy Pilgrim are kind of out of order. And it's like time travel, 
and anti-war kind of overtones. It's just a really strange story, but it is known as one of the like most famous anti-war novels of all time. Yeah. Like I've heard of it. I just, I never had a desire to read it. And now I really, I'm, I'm sorry, Kurt Vonnegut. I have no desire to read it even after that. Yeah. It's a lot of like post-traumatic stress and like the character's children kind of like he has a family and then kind of time travels. He ends up getting like abducted by aliens, I believe as well. It's been a long time since I've read it. Um, (laughs) So yeah, it, it's a it's an interesting read, but basically, I guess Kurt Vonnegut writes about Tony. As he well. does, and it's like kind of using his fame from writing the book. And he wrote for Life Magazine, uh, July twenty fifth, nineteen sixty nine. And in this whole write up, I read it. It was a great write up on it. He basically compared Tony to Jack the Ripper. Like, okay, because he was finding these women. He was completely annihilating them the only difference we've already been over this jack the ripper he wasn't a sexual sadist he never sexually touched the women so like pretty much the only difference is that they both chopped women up Uh uh-huh yeah oh i forgot to mention this he actually has a nickname of chop chop tony but i refuse i mean like i love giving serial killers horrible names and that is one yeah but it also seems very disrespectful to the women yeah yeah it it totally is so yeah, okay. So Tony. Yeah. So Tony, yeah. <laughs> this is Tony. Okay. So he's in prison. And because he is a he is who he is in 1974, four years into his prison sentence, he was found hanging in his cell by a leather belt. And it was determined to be suicide at the age of 29. And there's theories about how he would get said leather belt. And but... so is it questionable whether or not no. he committed suicide? Uh, no. Okay. Upward inflection. Yeah. It is, it is what it is, but, um, so, okay. And because people can't math or calendar and I don't know, (laughs) this drives me bonkers. Okay. So, so many people are like, Tony had a, you know, deal with this one, like this next Mm -hmm. case that we're going to go over. And I'm like, okay, he, he was, he was found dead in his cell before this next person was murdered. Uh Uh-huh. But I mean, this is, he's probably, because Cape Cod is such an idyllic area, right? And mm-hmm. so we know that he's active in this area. So I think there is a tendency to just lay all bad things at the feet of this one person, Yeah. right? Okay. So just so you know, Tony has absolutely nothing to do with the case that we are discussing, but I would be remiss not to discuss it because for some reason, his name always pops up. And it was driving me bonkers during my research. So we're going to cover it. And it's got some fascinating updates. Yeah. Uh, I was so excited this past week. Okay. So starting at the way beginning, we're going to take you on the same journey I personally had to live my life through (laughs) because the updates happened so recently. So, and I wrote this story probably a year ago. Uh So that's why I'm saying you're on the journey with me. So this is another one of those like vintage cases that we mm-hmm. would normally cover as a vintage homicide. Now it's suddenly right it's in the just mix. just like the murders at Starved Rock where I wrote it so long ago. And then before we even had a chance to record, the updates happened. Yeah. So that's what's happening again. So hold on to your booties. All right. July 26th, 1974. I've heard two accounts because this is how life works. Either a teenage girl named Leslie Metcalf who was walking either alone or with others, 
okay. and her dog or a friend's dog at the race point dunes, which is around 11 to 16 miles from Tony's graveyard. But their walk did not turn out to be a relaxing, fun-filled day. The dog ran away and started sniffing around at something. And it was a woman's body. Okay. The other one is it was could have been, theoretically, a crime writer, Sandra Lee, who was nine at the time and said that she was the first person to find this woman two days before Leslie Metcalf did. But she didn't tell anyone because she was scared. Okay. So that's what she says. All right. So usually it's attributed to Leslie Metcalf. All right. Okay. So, so two accounts of these two individuals coming across this body. Yes. So either way, police were called in and the, it's about 15 feet away from a service road on the backside of a campground in the area. So it's a little bit tucked away like her body. Now, what they find is a nude woman lying on a green towel or blanket uh, with her Wrangler jeans folded under her head. So she was using them like a pillow along with a blue bandana. There was fly activity around her and her decomposition indicated that she had been dead anywhere from 10 days to three weeks. Okay. She was a white woman in her twenties or thirties. She had medium length auburn red hair pulled back into a ponytail with a gold flecked elastic band. Her toenails were painted pink. She was five foot six tall, weighed about 145 pounds and did have dental work done in the quote unquote New York style which I have never heard of. Yeah. I didn't know what that term meant either. I had to look into it, but it, it kind of makes sense to me now given the time period. So apparently it was really popular and kind of called New York style dentistry. And this was when people went in for kind of cosmetic dentistry work where partials and crowns and fillers are used to oh. give the appearance of a really filled in perfectly even smile. Okay. So think about teeth being filed to the same length or veneers. Yes. So modernly we would achieve this through veneers, but it's to get that really, really TV model smile, right? So think about people who are like game show hosts, right? And they have that perfect, even smile. So that's, (laughs) that's what New York style dentistry apparently is. I want New York style dentistry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just have terrible Irish teeth and uh, there's nothing to do about it. So several of her teeth, however, were removed, but not the pricey gold crowns that she had. Now, unfortunately, due to the stage of her decomposition, they were unable to determine her eye color as when you're decomposing, your eyes are just fluid filled sacks and fluid doesn't stay where it was as your body breaks down. Mm -hmm. That was a pretty nice way of me putting it. Okay. Yeah. This woman is known as the lady of the dunes, which you might've heard of before. So now her throat was deeply cut with what appeared to be like a military trench tool. Like, yeah, it's an entrenching tool. It's just a fancy word for shovel. So, you know, the military standard issue shovel that's given to soldiers, especially common in the Vietnam era. It's Doesn't like it have a, like a serrated edge on one side. Yes. Okay. It's I can picture short it now. little shovel. It's with a, like a spade tip, very pointed tip and kind of serrated edge on one side. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. And this actually was so strong that it almost severed her head. She also had a wound to the back of her head and her hands were removed one at the wrist, the other at the elbow. She had been sexually assaulted with what looked like a piece of wood. I, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah. 
Her cause of death, however, was the head trauma due to a blunt force injury on the left side of her head. So hopefully she was deceased before everything. The scene itself showed no signs of a struggle. There were two sets of footprints and tire tracks nearby, and that was pretty much it. Now, based on that, it was believed that since there was no struggle, she was either killed while sleeping, it was a secondary location, or she knew the individual. Okay. Okay. So police started with missing persons reports, but no one matched her description. They looked into the dental work, but could find no dentist that admitted to performing hers. They looked for the vehicle that may have left the tire tracks. Nothing, which is, that's like the exact opposite of last week's case, where the tire tracks led directly. Right. A sketch of her was released to the public, but no one seemed to recognize her. There was one woman from Maryland that thought it could possibly be her sister, but that was never confirmed. She wound up being buried in October when the trail went cold. So again, she was found July. She was buried in October. So they have really been trying. There was a first facial reconstruction in 1979. They exhumed her again, or they exhumed her for the first time in 1980. This led to no new information. So they buried her again. She was exhumed again in 2000. So that way they could extract DNA from her. Mm -hmm. May 2010, her skull was given a CT scan to have some new fendangled facial reconstruction pewterized thing done. <laughs> yes. I explained that very poorly. No. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's okay. We're going to break it down. So it's kind of interesting how they do facial reconstruction. So early days, which are traditional methods, you would have to rely on basically an artist that had some knowledge of anthropology because facial reconstruction is usually associated with two branches of science, forensic science and archaeology. These were, are usually the only two fields that utilize facial reconstruction. So the remains of a human skull acts as the only input for what this person most likely looked like. Okay. And then any additional information that they can gather, right? Like ethnicity, hair color, eye color, right? And then they start to layer these things on the face. And they do this by making like a clay or some other multiple substance replica of the skull. So like they, they take a skull and then they build on top of it and they use these anatomical cues from reference data. This reference data is essentially the flesh on your, your face, like the depth. Okay. So, and then you would use an, an artistic modeling expert who then okay. would and just, that's what you're describing is the one that happened in 1979. Correct. Okay. And that is the traditional method. So gotcha. those also, they look a little campy because they're like little sculptures. It almost the, reminds me of like if a horror movie and you were trying to make like a mannequin face or something like a house of wax. Yeah. Uh, that's well, what I'm picturing. Yeah. So it's something very much like that. And it's, it's very time consuming and it's really, it can only be done like once. So then as technology progresses and time goes on, they start to integrate computer-based methods that are much better. And they take all of this meta information, like age, weight, ethnicity, and these sort of measurements of depth and kind of layer it onto the skull. And this Craniofacial reconstruction is what it's called. It's really commonly used to sort of help the public identify an individual, right? Because all we have now is just the skull. 
We don't know really what this person looks like, but we need to put out some information to kind of trigger identification. Doesn't this also work for people that have like a lot of soft tissue damage on their face and they basically can't show that. So instead they do like this facial reconstruction to make it not look so brutal. Yes. And also for medical purposes to help reconstruct people's face in general, they like uh, when they get damaged. Yeah. Right. So they, uh, they utilize the same kind of computer modeling in order to build prosthetics and things like that to reconstruct person's face. So this is based on, you might have seen it where they put like a little peg on top of the skull and that peg is representing the average thickness. So there's something called average facial soft tissue thickness, which is abbreviated FSTT. And there's databases for these measurements. It started with a Russian anthropologist named Mikhail Garisovmov, like brutalizing Russia right there. Basically conducted a lot of studies to kind of get an average FSTT for specific sites on the face. And so this is like off the cheekbones, above the brow, at the eye, around the mouth and nose, right? To understand the relationship to FSTT to age, sex, race, and ethnicity. And so over time, the other researchers contributed to this research and they established these databases for ethnic groups. So for Caucasians, Germans, Japanese, Koreans, whatever. So whites, because we've already been over this. I'm not Caucasian. I'm white. Anthropologists <laughs> refer to this as Caucasian. They're so wrong. That's that's what the database says. They're wrong. Um, and fine, your opinion. <laughs> um, so again, that's what anthropologists utilize is these measurements, and so that's how it gets a facial reconstruction overlay, and they can do this either computerized or they can actually now make more accurate models. So sounds like this is what they used and what they applied much later. Yeah. Um, 2010. Okay. And, um, and then what happened from this? Well, this was done by the forensic experts at, this is a very long name, but it needs to be said, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the S- Smithsonian Institution. So they took it upon themselves to handle this one. But unfortunately, again, this led to nothing. So now it's time for the theories. Someone came up with the theory that it was a female bank robber named Rory Jean Kessinger, who had been arrested for the attempted murder of two police officers and for being a part of an organized crime group. It was believed that she could have been killed by the group. But as the years went on, fast forward to 2002, a DNA test was done and it was confirmed that it was not her. Okay. Now, Joe Hill, which you may know, he's an author of his own right of good horror novels. I love a couple of his books. He is the son of Stephen King. And he had a theory that this woman was an extra in the movie Jaws during the 4th of July beach scene that was filmed at Martha's Vineyard. So as we've already said, Martha's Vineyard is a part of this Cape region. Right. It's an island just south of that little hooky Cape. Yeah. And so Mm -hmm. like, I I mean, we've got some Jaws at this time. It was like such a big deal and it was being filmed there. And I love the movie Jaws. You, You could say what you want. I love it. Yeah. So, okay. So they think that she may have been there participating as an extra. Yeah. And like, there's some crazy stories about the extras in this movie. Yeah. So some of the things that we researched during the filming of Jaws, there was an actor strike, I guess, or the threat of an impending actor strike. And they filmed this when it was cold. 
So it was not, even though it was supposed to be a summertime scene, it was actually not warm at all. And so if you imagine all these extras being in bathing suits yeah, out in the freezing cold, because it's freaking cold in Massachusetts when it's yeah, not it, summertime. Is, it's May, May, there's still snow. <laughs> yeah. And I guess they were paid very poorly as sometimes, you know, extras are. And so a lot of them didn't want to come back and film. And so they were kind of bribed with brandy. (laughs) So you had a bunch of really drunk extras (laughs) trying to grit through the cold on the beach while filming these like summertime beach scenes. Right. And so one of these, one of these extras, like, and you could... I'll see if I can find an image and post it on our socials, but there is a woman on set that does resemble the lady of the dunes. And she was also wearing a blue bandana and Wrangler jeans. Wow. So there might be, it might hold some water here. This theory. Theoretically, theoretically. So that's May, 1974 that that was filmed. She did have the teeth for it. Mm-hmm, exactly. And which <laughs> might mean that she was trying to break into the industry mm-hmm. by being an extra But we finally have closure of who the Lady of the Dunes is. And this was done October 31st this year. So a couple weeks before we're filming or filming, recording this episode, (laughs) the Boston Division of the FBI identified the victim as Ruth Mary Terry from Tennessee. She was 37 when she went missing. And it's still unknown really why she was in Provincetown, but they used forensic genealogy for this, which we've heard before, like the Golden State and Grim Sleeper. Yeah. And we kind of discussed this on another episode already of kind of like the science of how this works. I assume they must have had somebody else who was in the database than a family member yeah, so that linked her to yeah, him. We're going to have to kind of backtrack a little bit of this before, but just a little bit about Ruth. There's not much because this is such a fresh discovery. I've literally been following it day by day. Yeah. This literally just happened. So there's, they're actively still investigating how this, how this woman that they've now identified winds up here. Correct. And so her family described Ruth as a loving person and a free spirit. And she just wanted to live her life outside of Tennessee. Like she, wanted the great wide open and her family last saw her four months before her murder. And she was last known to be with her boyfriend in California, a guy named guy. He was the one who told the family that she went missing, basically that she abandoned him. Okay. So now this is where we backtrack to the forensic genealogy in 1958. When she was 21, she had a son that she gave up for adoption to a trusted coworker while she was looking, working in Livonia, Michigan. Now, as most of us have done at this point, 2018, he did a DNA test through Ancestry Mm -hmm. and he found out that his biological mother's family was in Tennessee. And when he reached out to contact them, that's when he found out that she had been missing since 1974. Oh, I see. Okay. So, and then unfortunately what he said is when he was 13, his mother tried to reach out to him to like connect with him. And because he's a 13 year old boy who's been given up for adoption, he told his mom basically like, no, no, I have no interest, which he does say that he regrets doing that. But now we jump to this confirmation. It was confirmed that he was the son of the lady of the dunes because of the ancestry connection. Right. Okay. Because the family members presumably are all in the missing persons database um, as, as secondary reference samples for 
their, you know, missing person, which right. was her. We just didn't know that this body that was found in Cape Cod was this missing person. Well, because this one, because he is a direct descendant of her. Right. It's, it's more conclusive than the aunts and uncles that he has. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how they were able to establish through genealogy that his mother is this person. Yes. From these. And it is confirmed because, you know, like the same as what we do with DNA, like though you have a hit in the CODIS database, you then have to go back to the suspect and get a definitive sample that you run against and it's your confirmation. Yeah. So that's what they did in this case as well. Okay. Her family plans to have her moved from Cape Cod because right now she's in an, un- like the the grave is marked Lady of the Dunes mm-hmm. um, because they wanted to give her a proper burial. She deserved one. And so she is buried with respect, but the family wants to have her moved to be buried next to her parents in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. All right. So now who did it? Okay. Yeah. So we know who this is, but we still don't know who did it. So the first suspect is serial killer Haddon Clark. So who's Haddon? He was born 1952, raised in New York as one of four kids. The family was dysfunctional. His older brother, Bradfield, beat and strangled a woman named Trish Mack in California. He then ate her breasts. And this was in 1984. Yeah, that's that's dysfunctional. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, hey, we do have cannibalism for this episode. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Okay. Um, For this, he was sentenced to 18 years to life. Their father killed themselves next to his daughter's house. Why? Presumably because Haddon was being questioned for the disappearance of a woman named Michelle Dorr, who was six, sorry, not woman, a little girl. She was six when she went missing Memorial Day, 1986. So why was Haddon questioned? He lived two doors down. That was pretty much the only connection. Mm-hmm. All right. So a naval psychiatrist diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, and that led to him being discharged. In 1992, he killed 23-year-old Laura Huftilling in Bethesda by stabbing her and suffocating her with a pillow. He was found by a bloody fingerprint on the pillowcase. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced to 30 years in prison. Now, after this, they went to his house and found Michelle's blood on the floorboards in an upstairs bedroom. Haddon led police to her body, which had been stabbed and stuffed in a duffel bag. Okay, connection to Tony. (laughs) Uh Um, And buried about 12 miles away from where he lived. He was sentenced to another 30 years. So now why is Haddon a suspect? In 2004, he stated, quote, I could have told police what her name was, but after they beat the shit out of me, I wasn't going to tell them shit. The murder is still unsolved, and what police are looking for is in my grandfather's garden. He also sent a letter to his friend confessing he killed a woman in Cape Cod in 1974 and sent two drawings. One was a headless naked woman on her stomach. The other was a map marking the location of her body, but news articles and stuff, who knows how much of this is true. So another suspect for this case is Whitey Bulger. Okay. Like, like the gangster, the, the Whitey Bulger. So in case you didn't know, he was the leader of the winter Hill gang in Massachusetts. He was an FBI informant. If you don't know Whitey Bulger, I'm sorry. You have been living under a rock, especially if you live in the United States. Yeah. I mean, but how would he be connected to this? So he fled this area in 1994, 16 years later, he was caught, arrested and tried for 19 murders. Um, He was murdered in prison in 2018, having never commented on the Lady of the Dunes, but 
His MO is he was known to take teeth and fingers from his victims. So she had teeth and hands removed. He also was in the area during the time of her murder. He had been seen in the company of a woman who looked like the Lady of the Dunes, a.k.a. Ruth. And one of the shoe impressions that was found near her body was a size 10 and Whitey Bulger was a size 10. Okay. So a lot of like circumstantial stuff. Of course. I mean, there is no hard evidence in this case, but he's a suspect. But now we're going to get to the most likely culprit that the FBI is currently naming as a suspect, an official suspect, and they want more information on him. Okay. Okay. So the police believe that that boyfriend guy Mm-hmm. who was at, who wound up marrying Ruth Mary Terry. Um, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. They believe that he was the one who did it. He went by um, multiple aliases, but his real name was uh, Rockwell Guy Moldavin, but he also went by Raul Rockwell. Okay. Um, and what makes him a curious sort? I mean, we always say, oh, the husband did it, but this one. Mm-hmm. Okay. So he's, so he's the one that ultimately reports her missing, though, to the to family. Her family. Okay. Right. Okay. So they wound up, they married just a few months before she was murdered in Reno. Okay. But in, we got to get to his backstory because. Okay. Okay. So in 1960, he was arrested for grand larceny and police had questioned him and were wondering about a double homicide that he was connected to. Okay. All right. So he was an antiques dealer whose first marriage ended after 10 years in 1956. He then had his second wife, Manzanita Mearns, who was 39. She worked at a bank and he was now a stepfather to Dolores Ann, who was 18. They all lived in Seattle, Washington at the time, but both women, Manzanita and Dolores went missing April 1st, 1960. Now, Rockwell, basically he was like, I don't know what happened. I was abandoned by my wife and stepdaughter. So in July 1960, he received a divorce based on the grounds of uh, desertion. Now we're talking days later, he married his third wife, Evelyn Emerson. Now we all circle back because Evelyn's mother gave him a $10,000 loan on the pretense that he was going to go to Canada, buy antiques and resell them on the quick for a profit. Uh huh. Instead, he took the money and ran. He bought a car, he got nose surgery, he drove cross country. So obviously they were like, stole my money. Police finally track him down. But before that, okay, so this is all happening simultaneously. So now Manzanita was reported missing by her first husband, August 1960. So this is a a couple months. It's a month after he gets the uh, like the divorce divorce. Because of desertion, which is, I guess, kind of like an annulment. (laughs) Exactly. And so like April 1st, her and her daughter goes missing. So this is his ex-wife and his daughter. Uh And so he reports the missing August 1960. Okay. So police go to Rockwell's home to, you know, officially go and see if what they could find. Now, keep in mind, Rockwell is busy driving cross country right now. Yeah. Having fun with some 10 grand. Because he fled his new wife. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So. Police decide to search his home, which they now have access to. And there was a recently kind of renovated cistern Uh area thing, um, a septic tank. And inside they found flesh and body parts. Hmm. Um, Yeah. Okay. uh, Of the human variety. Right. Inside the house, there were bloodstains and hair and fiber evidence as well. 
And these connected to the type of clothing that Manzanita. Oh, by the way, she went by Manzi. How cute is that? And oh, that is Dolores cute. were known to wear. In fact, there was, I read this in one place that the neighbor and Manzi shared a cowhide belt. So like one of those were, and there was a cowhide fiber found in one of the bloodstains. So they, and that cowhide belt was no longer in the house. Okay. So, so nothing conclusively linking her, but wardrobe that she would have worn. Yeah. And I mean like the blood, but I don't know if they like typed the blood or anything. I'm not a hundred percent sure, but because of this, like it, it all seemed somewhat circumstantial because he hadn't been there. So could somebody else have done this is pretty much what they were like. Eh. Okay. Cause he hadn't been there April, May, June, four months. Mm-hmm. So even though they went missing, they could have come back after he left and In somebody theory. else could have done it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So because of this, they didn't actually, and they couldn't conclusively state that the body parts that were found in the septic tank were of Manzi and Dolores. So instead what police were doing is they went to search for him to question about, like, they were like, okay, we found the stuff. We need to go question Rockwell to figure out what he knows about it. Mm -hmm. Well, keep in mind, he's on the run with these 10 grand. Right. So they wind up tracking him to Greenwich village Mm -hmm. in an apartment there. And they arrested him for the grand larceny but he wasn't actually charged with anything having to do with the missing wife and stepdaughter. Okay. Okay. Cause they couldn't officially pin that on him. Yeah. Cause they didn't have DNA analysis back then. No, there was nothing that could lead to the identity. They just had body parts. Correct. Or even confirm that he was the killer. Right. So, because you can't really get a time of death from right. Body parts and flesh in a septic system. Yeah. So it just seems a little suspicious, right? It's, it's a little bit connected. So, even though he was arrested, he did get sentenced to 15 years for larceny, but his sentence was suspended in 1962, so long as he repaid the loan. Okay. Again, another suspended sentence. Yeah. So, like I said, Rockwell and Terry married in Reno months before her disappearance and murder. And so so this now is her second marriage, his fourth, because this is 1974. Okay. Okay. So he died in 2002 while married to his fifth wife, Phyllis Roper. So she's listed as his widow. But now here's the the catch is police and FBI have no idea where Guy was in the 1970s. Of course, Uh you know, like we don't all have records of our history. It wasn't in the day of social media. So they actually and they don't even know why he or Terry would be in the Provincetown area because it was yeah. Seattle and, and Reno. Yeah, they're not they're not from there. Yeah. No. Last known location for her was Reno after her marriage to him. Right. And allegedly, like his dad had property from way historically in Provincetown. So he might have had some, some connection. connection. Okay. But it's it eh. so actually they if you are from the area and you are listening and you know you were alive at this time or your parents were alive at this time. Anything you know, they are asking for help at 1-800-CAPTURE-WITH-A-K or 1-800-527-8873. If you have any information about what Guy Rockwell or our Lady of the Dunes, Ruth Terry, was doing in this Provincetown area at this time of like the 1970s. So when we say it's freshy, it's freshy. Yeah, it's an active investigation. They're trying to understand the link to... Terry and this location and how she may have arrived there, who she may have been with. If she was with her husband at the time. Right. Um, And so they're also kind of looking into Guy. 
and seeing if he can be located there at the same time. And is he alive or dead now? He died in 2002. Okay. So they can't question him. Right. So they're trying to, they're trying to figure out who did this, but they're trying to link all the puzzle pieces together. Yes. And I have no record of him actually having any children of his own, just that one stepdaughter. But yeah, so this is crazy. We'll keep you updated as we know, just like the Chester Rieger, by the way, there's been no updates on that. I'm waiting for January now because everything got pushed. Yeah. um, Because he's still trying to fight for exoneration. Okay. All right. So if you head to Cape Cod, avoid Jaws while enjoying your seafood. Try to avoid Martha's Vineyard. Remember, up is west, down is east. And John Waters has an annual Provincetown International Film Festival. And try your best not to get chopped up. Yeah. So interesting area. It really to is. To say the least. <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> long story short, ancestry.com is Facebook for dead people. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that cracked me up. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's kind of what we use it for now. Yeah. And what do you get when you watch Jaws backward? Uh, I don't know what. A shark that gives amputees back their arms and legs. Okay. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And it leads to an opening of a beach. Oh, my goodness. Uh, (laughs) Anywho. You enjoyed that way too much. (laughs) Sometimes I'm allowed to crack myself up. Yeah, clearly. (laughs) All right. So we really hope that you guys enjoy this. Like I said, we'll keep you updated. More to come. More to come. So we'll talk to you next week. See you next time. Bye. Homicide is produced by J.H. Cabral. Additional editing and theme music produced by Matt Beck. A special thanks to Bonnie Navarro Photography and Bombshell Betty's Calendar. Please visit bombshellbettyscalendars.com for more information. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Vintage Homicide Podcast. Please subscribe wherever you prefer to download your podcasts and join us next time for more tantalizing tales of murder and mystery.